Chapter Two of Fanny Herself. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Fanny Herself by Edna Ferber. Chapter Two. Right here, there should be something said about Fanny Brandeis, and yet each time I turn to her, I find her mother plucking at my sleeve. There comes to my mind the picture of Mrs. Brandeis turning down Nara Street at quarter to eight every morning, her walk almost a march, so firm and measured it was, her head high, her chin thrust forward a little, as a fighter walks, but not pugnaciously, her short gray skirt clearing the ground, her shoulders almost consciously squared. Other Winnebago women were just tying up their daughters' pigtails for school, or sweeping the front porch, or watering the hanging baskets. Norris Street residents got into the habit of timing themselves by Mrs. Brandeis, when she marched by at seven forty five they hurried a little with the tying of the hair bows as they glanced out of the window when she came by again a little before twelve for her hasty dinner they turned up the fire under the potatoes and stirred the flour thickening for the gravy mrs brandeis had soon learned that fanny and theodore could manage their own school toilettes with perhaps some speeding up on the part of mattie the servant girl but it needed her keen brown eye to detect corners that aloysius had neglected to sweep out with wet sawdust and her presence to make sure that the counter-covers were taken off and folded, the outside show dusted and arranged, the windows washed, the whole store shining and ready for business by eight o'clock. So Fanny had even learned to do her own tight, shiny, black shoulder-length curls, which she tied back with a black bow. They were wet, meek, and tractable curls at eight in the morning. By the time school was out at four, they were as wildly unruly as if charged with electric currents, which they really were, when you consider the little dynamo that wore them. Mrs. Brandeis took a scant half-hour to walk the six blocks between the store and the house, to snatch a hurried dinner, and traverse the distance to the store again. It was a program that would have killed a woman less magnificently healthy and determined. She seemed to thrive on it, and she kept her figure and her wit when other women of her age grew dull and heavy and ineffectual. On summer days the little town often lay shimmering in the heat, the yellow road glaring in it, the red bricks of the high school reflecting it in waves, the very pine knots in the sidewalks gummy and resinous with heat, and sending up a pungent smell that was of the woods yet stifling. She must have felt an almost irresistible temptation to sit for a moment on the cool, shady front porch, with its green-painted flower-boxes, its hanging fern-baskets, and the catalpa tree looking boskily down upon it. But she never did. She had an almost savage energy and determination. The unpaid debts were ever ahead of her. There were the children to be dressed and sent to school. There was the household to be kept up. There were Theodore's violin lessons that must not be neglected, not after what Professor Bauer had said about him. You may think that undue stress is being laid upon this driving force in her, upon this business ability. But remember that this was fifteen years or more ago, before women had invaded the world of business by the thousands, to take their place, side by side, salary for salary, with men. Oh, there were plenty of women wage-earners in Winnebago, as elsewhere, clerks, stenographers, school-teachers, bookkeepers. The paper mills were full of girls, and the canning factory, too. But here was a woman, gently bred, untrained in business, left widowed with two children at thirty-eight, and worse than penniless, in debt. And that was not all. As Ferdinand Brandeis's wife, she had occupied a certain social position in the little Jewish community of Winnebago. True, they had never been moneyed, while the others of her own faith in the little town were wealthy and somewhat purse-proud. 
They had carriages, most of them, with two handsome horses, and their houses were spacious and veranda-encircled and set in shady lawns. When the Brandeis family came to Winnebago five years before, these people had waited cautiously and investigated, and then had called. They were of a type to be found in every small town, prosperous, conservative, constructive citizens, clannish, but not so much so as their city cousins, mingling socially with their Gentile neighbors, living well, spending their money freely, taking a vast pride in the education of their children. But here was Molly Brandeis, a Jewess, setting out to earn her living in business, like a man. It was a thing to stir Congregation Emmanuel to its depths. Jewish women, they would tell you, did not work thus. Their husbands worked for them, or their sons, or their brothers. "'Oh, I don't know,' said Mrs. Brandeis, when she heard of it. "'I seem to remember a Jewess named Ruth, who was left widowed, and who gleaned in the fields for her living, and yet the neighbors didn't talk. For that matter, she seems to be pretty well thought of, to this day.' but there is no denying that she lost caste among her own people. Custom and training are difficult to overcome. But Molly Brandeis was too deep in her own affairs to care. That Christmas season following her husband's death was a ghastly time, and yet a grimly wonderful one, for it applied the acid test to Molly Brandeis and showed her up pure gold. The first week in January she, with Sadie and Pearl, the two clerks, and Aloysius, the boy, took inventory. It was a terrifying thing, that process of casting up accounts. It showed with such starkness how hideously the Brandeis ledger sagged on the wrong side. The three women and the boy worked with a sort of dogged cheerfulness at it, counting, marking, dusting, washing. They found shelves full of forgotten stock, dust-covered and profitless. They found many articles of what is known as hard stock, akin to the plush album, glass and plated condiment casters for the dining-table, in a day when individual salts and separate vinegar cruets were already the thing, lamps with straight wicks, when round wicks were in demand. They scoured shelves, removed the grime of years from boxes, washed whole battalions of chamber sets, bathed piles of plates and bins of cups and saucers. It was a dirty, back-breaking job that ruined the fingernails, tried the disposition, and caked the throat with dust. Besides, the store was stove-heated, and near the front door uncomfortably cold. The women wore little shoulder-shawls pinned over their waists for warmth, and all four, including Aloysius, sniffled for weeks afterward. That inventory developed a new, grim line around Mrs. Brandeis's mouth, and carved another at the corner of each eye. After it was over, she washed her hair, steamed her face over a bowl of hot water, packed two valises, left minute and masterful instructions with Mattie as to the household, and with Sadie and Pearl as to the store, and was off to Chicago on her first buying trip. She took Fanny with her as ballast. It was a trial at which many men would have quailed. On the shrewdness and judgment of that buying trip depended the future of Brandeis's bazaar, and Mrs. Brandeis, and Fanny, and Theodore. Mrs. Brandeis had accompanied her husband on many of his trips to Chicago. She had even gone with him occasionally to the wholesale houses around LaSalle Street and Madison and Fifth Avenue, but she had never bought a dollar's worth herself. She saw that he bought slowly, cautiously, and without imagination. She made up her mind that she would buy quickly, intuitively. She knew slightly some of the salesmen in the wholesale houses. They had often made presents to her of a vase, a pocketbook, a handkerchief, or some such trifle, which she accepted reluctantly when at all. She was thankful now for these visits. She found herself remembering many details of them. 
she made up her mind with a canny knowingness that there should be no presents this time, no theatre invitations, no lunches or dinners. This was business, she told herself. More than business, it was grim war. They still tell of that trip sometimes, when buyers and jobbers and wholesale men get together. Don't imagine that she came to be a woman captain of finance. Don't think that we are to see her at the head of a magnificent business establishment, with buyers and department heads below her, and a private office done up in mahogany, and stenographers and secretaries. No, she was Mrs. Brandeis of Brandeis's Bazaar, to the end. The bills she bought were ridiculously small, I suppose, and the tricks she turned on that first trip were pitiful, perhaps. But they were magnificent, too, in their way. I am even bold enough to think that she might have made business history, that plucky woman, if she had had an earlier start, and if she had not, to the very end, had a pack of unmanageable handicaps yelping at her heels, pulling at her skirts. It was only a six-hour trip to Chicago. Fanny Brandeis's eyes, big enough at any time, were surely twice their size during the entire journey of two hundred miles or more. They were to have lunch on the train. They were to stop at a hotel. They were to go to the theater. She would have lain back against the red plush seat of the car in a swoon of joy if there had not been so much to see in the car itself and through the car window. "'We'll have something for lunch,' said Mrs. Brandeis, when they were seated in the dining car that we never have at home, shall we? Oh, yes, replied Fanny, in a whisper of excitement. Something, something queer and different, and not so very healthy. They had oysters, a New Yorker would have sniffed at them, and chicken pot pie, and asparagus, and ice cream. If that doesn't prove Mrs. Brandeis was game, I should like to know what could. They stopped at the Windsor Clifton, because it was quieter and less expensive than the Palmer House, though quite as full of red plush and walnut. Besides, she had stopped at the Palmer House with her husband, and she knew how buyers were likely to be besieged by eager salesmen with cards, and with tempting lines of goods spread knowingly in the various sample rooms. Fanny Brandeis was thirteen, and emotional, and incredibly receptive and alive. It is impossible to tell what she learned during that Chicago trip. It was so crowded, so wonderful. She went with her mother to the wholesale houses, and heard and saw, and unconsciously remembered. When she became fatigued with the close air of the dim showrooms, with their endless aisles piled with every sort of ware, she would sit on a chair in some obscure corner, watching those sleek, over-lunch, genial-looking salesmen who were chewing their cigars somewhat wildly when Mrs. Brandeis finished with them. Sometimes she did not accompany her mother, but lay in bed deliciously until the middle of the morning, then dressed and chatted with the obliging Irish chambermaid, and read until her mother came for her at noon. Everything she did was a delightful adventure. Everything she saw had the tang of novelty. Fanny Brandeis was to see much that was beautiful and rare in her full lifetime, but she never again, perhaps, got quite the thrill that those ugly, dim, red-carpeted, gas-lighted hotel corridors gave her, or the grim bedroom with its walnut furniture and its Nottingham curtains. As for the Chicago streets themselves, with their perilous corners—there were no czars in blue to regulate traffic in those days— Older and more sophisticated pedestrians experienced various emotions while negotiating the corner of State and Madison. That buying trip lasted ten days. It was a racking business, physically and mentally. There were the hours of tramping up one aisle and down the other in the big wholesale lofts. But that brought bodily fatigue only. It was the mental strain that left Mrs. Brandeis spent and limp at the end of the day. Was she buying wisely? Was she overbuying? What did she know about buying anyway? She would come back to her hotel at six, 
sometimes so exhausted that the dining-room and dinner were unthinkable. At such times they would have dinner in their room, another delicious adventure for Fanny. She would try to tempt the fagged woman on the bed with bits of this or that from one of the many dishes that dotted the dinner-tray. But Molly Brandeis, harrowed in spirit and numbed in body, was too spent to eat. But that was not always the case. There was that unforgettable night when they went to see Bernhardt the Divine. Fanny spent the entire morning following, standing before the bedroom mirror, with her hair pulled out and a wild fluff in front, her mother's old Martin fur scarf high and choky around her neck, trying to smile that slow, sad, poignant, tear-compelling smile. But she had to give it up, clever mimic though she was. She only succeeded in looking as though a pin were sticking her somewhere. Besides, Fanny's own smile was a quick, broad, flashing grin, with a generous glint of white teeth in it, and she always forgot about being exquisitely wistful over it until it was too late. I wonder if the story of the China religious figures will give a wrong impression of Mrs. Brandeis. Perhaps not, if you will only remember this woman's white-lipped determination to wrest a livelihood from the world for her children and herself. They had been in Chicago a week, and she was buying at Bowder and Peck's. Now Bowder and Peck importers are known the world over. It is doubtful if there is one of you who has not been supplied, indirectly, with some imported bit of china or glassware, with French opera glasses or cunning toys and dolls, from the great New York and Chicago showrooms of that company. Young Bowder himself was waiting on Mrs. Brandeis, and he was frowning because he hated to sell women. Young Bowder was being broken into the Chicago end of the business, and he was not taking gracefully to the process. At the end of a long aisle, on an obscure shelf in a dim corner, Molly Brandeis's sharp eyes espied a motley collection of dusty, grimy china figures, of the kind one sees on the mantel, in the parlor of the small-town Catholic home. Winnebago's population was two-thirds Catholic, German and Irish, and very devout. Mrs. Brandeis stopped short. "'How much for that lot?' She pointed to the shelf. Young Bowder's gaze followed hers, puzzled. The figures were from five inches to a foot high, in crude, effective blues and gold, and crimson and white. All the saints were there in assorted sizes. The piata, the cradle in the manger. There were probably two hundred or more of the little figures. Oh, those, said young Bowder vaguely. You don't want that stuff. Now about that Limoges china, as I said, I can make you a special price on it if you carry it as an open-stock pattern. You'll find— How much for that lot? repeated Mrs. Brandeis. Those are leftover samples, Mrs. Brandeis. Last year's stuff. They are all dirty. I'd forgotten they were there. "'How much for the lot?' said Mrs. Brandeis pleasantly, for the third time. "'I really don't know. Three hundred, I should say, but—' "'I'll give you two hundred, ventured Mrs. Brandeis, her heart in her mouth, and her mouth very firm. "'Oh, come now, Mrs. Brandeis. Bowder and Peck don't do business that way, you know. We'd really rather not sell them at all. The things aren't worth much to us, or to you, for that matter. But three hundred— Two hundred, repeated Mrs. Brandeis, or I cancel my order, including the Limoges.' I want those figures. And she got them. Which isn't the point of the story. The holy figures were fine examples of foreign workmanship, their colors beneath the coating of dust as brilliant and fadeless as those found in the churches of Europe. They reached Winnebago duly, packed in straw and paper, still dusty and shelf-worn. Mrs. Brandeis and Sadie and Pearl sat on upended boxes at the rear of the store, in the big barn-like room in which newly arrived goods were unpacked, as Aloysius dived deep into the crate and brought up figure after figure, the three women plunged them into warm and soapy water, and proceeded to bathe and scour the entire school of saints, angels, and cherubim. 
they came out brilliantly fresh and rosy. All the Irish ingenuity and artistry in Aloysius came to the surface as he dived again and again into the great barrel and brought up the glittering pieces. "'It'll make an elegant window,' he gasped from the depths of the hay, his lean, lengthy frame jackknifed over the edge, and cheap. His shrewd wit had long ago divined the store's price mark. "'If Father Fitzpatrick steps by in the forenoon, I'll bet they'll be gone before night-time to-morrow. You'll be letting me do the trim, Mrs. Brandeis?' He came back that evening to do it, and he threw his whole soul into it, which, considering his ancestry and temperament, was very high voltage for one small-town store window. He covered the floor of the window with black crepe paper, and hung it in long folds like a curtain against the rear wall. The gilt of the scepters and halos and capes showed up dazzlingly against this background. The scarlets and pinks and blues and whites of the robes appeared doubly bright. The whole made a picture that struck and held you by its vividness and contrast. Father Fitzpatrick, very tall and straight, and handsome, with his iron-gray hair and his cheeks pink as a girl's, did step by next morning on his way to the post-office. It was whispered that in his youth Father Fitzpatrick had been an actor, and that he had deserted the footlights for the altar-lights because of a disappointment. The drama's loss was the church's gain. You should have heard him on Sunday morning. Now flaying them, now swaying them. He still had the actor's flexible voice, vibrant, tremulous, or strident at will. And no amount of fasting or praying had ever dimmed that certain something in his eye, the something which makes the matinee idol. Not only did he step by now, he turned, came back, stopped before the window. Then he entered. "'Madam,' he said to Mrs. Brandeis, "'you'll probably save more souls with your window display than I could in a month of hellfire sermons.' He raised his hand. "'You have the sanction of the church,' which was the beginning of a queer friendship between the Roman Catholic priest and the Jewish shopkeeper that lasted as long as Molly Brandeis lived. By noon it seemed that the entire population of Winnebago had turned devout. The figures, a tremendous bargain, though sold at a high profit, seemed to melt away from the counter that held them. By three o'clock, "'Only one to a customer,' announced Mrs. Brandeis. By the middle of the week the window itself was ravished of its show. By the end of the week there remained only a handful of the duller and less desirable pieces, the minor saints, so to speak. Saturday night Mrs. Brandeis did a little figuring on paper. The lot had cost her two hundred dollars. She had sold for six hundred. Two from six leaves four. Four hundred dollars! She repeated it to herself, quietly. Her mind leaped back to the plush photograph album, then to young Bowder and his cool contempt, and there stole over her that warm, comfortable glow born of reassurance and triumph. Four hundred dollars! Not much in these days of big business. We said, you will remember, that it was a pitiful enough little trick she turned to make it, though an honest one, and, in the face of disapproval, a rather magnificent one, too, for it gave to Molly Brandeis that precious quality, self-confidence, out of which is born success. End of chapter 2